Hello and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Gastola, and I'm joined by the show's other host, Rania Kalik. Hello, Rania. Hey, Kevin. And this week, uh, we're very pleased to have as our guest, Janice Williamson, who is a professor in the Department of English and Film Studies at the University of Alberta in Canada. And we are having her on this program to talk about Omar Khadr, who was once the youngest prisoner at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, the U.S. military prison. Uh, she is the editor of the book, Omar Khadr, O Canada, which is an anthology that has over 30 different authors. Um, and Janice is someone who writes quite a bit about, just, uh, about social justice issues. So we're very happy to have her on this program. Thank you, Janice. Yes, well, I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me to speak. And uh, and so and so we'll just start. Uh, the 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 best and uh, easiest way to enter is just to have you talk about what you've been witnessing. I understand that you've been going to his hearings in Canada uh, as they have been happening, and and have seen the legal deliberations. I guess can you talk about. Who is Omar Khadr and then this this incredible news that he was released on bail? Yes. Um, well, I just I just want to correct one one uh, one part of your introduction. Just uh, Omar Khadr was not the youngest child at Guantanamo. In fact, there are, he was 15 uh, when he was uh, captured in 2002 on July 27th uh, in Afghanistan, and uh, he spent three months in Bagram uh, in. Uh, Afghanistan, and then he was shipped to Guantanamo. But in Guantanamo, there were a number of children, and there was one, I think, as young as 12. Um, if you want any further information about the children in Guantanamo, there's a terrific book, a uh, very disturbing book, by Henry A. Giroux called Hearts of Darkness, Torturing Children in the War on Terror. And the foreword is by Chris Hedges. It's a very good book, and it, it explores that that extraordinarily, it, it's a kind of the, the the secret history of of Guantanamo. People don't re- realize there were there were children there. But Omar Khadr was the only youth or child who was not housed in a special area of Guantanamo. He was housed with uh, with the adults. He was the only child or youth housed with adults. Oh, thank you for that correction. Uh, and so, uh, can you talk about uh, you know him being brought to? Canada, uh, being jailed there, and, and, and his case, and then this this yes. incredible development. Yes. Well, just to go back a little bit on on October uh, in October of, of twenty ten, Omar Khadr's um, plea bargain in Guantanamo uh, was successful in that he was able to um, negotiate a plea bargain that would allow eventually for him to leave. He was given uh, a um, sentence of, of one year in Guantanamo and then seven more years in, in Canadian prison. This was a, um, this, this eight-year sentence um, was, uh, was basically uh, developed because Omar Khadr was, was afraid he would never, ever get out of Guantanamo if he, if he didn't go with a plea bargain. Uh, so uh, he was, he stayed for more than a year in Guantanamo. Uh, Stephen Harper uh, has been resisting Omar Khadr's return, and uh, it's been very important for his government, which includes a base uh, that is uh, very right-wing, uh, very much into the kind of law and order um, technologies of the United States, actually. And uh, and. So the, the prime minister was very resistant that Omar Khadr returned, and he would not let him come back. In fact, uh, there were jokes uh, that the um, Pentagon was going to drop Omar Khadr off on the Canadian border and just push him across because our government refused, you know, kept refusing to repatriate him, even though the um, foreign minister had signed an agreement with uh, with Hillary Clinton. Uh, to the effect that he would be transferred after a year in Guantanamo. So eventually, uh, he he did return, uh, but um, and he was placed in a prison in in Ontario, Millhaven Penitentiary, which is a federal penitentiary. Um, but after a, a while, uh, there was a contract out on his life there, 
so they transferred him to a federal prison here in Alberta, which is in which is in Western Canada. And uh, and it's also where his two lawyers, very devoted lawyers, Nate Whitling and Dennis Edney, live. Um, so he was in a, the federal federal prison for some time. Uh, however, because he was 15 years old when he was captured, uh, there was you know there there you know it's completely against international law. Uh, that that he should should have been imprisoned. That he you know he was a minor in a time of war. Uh, Romeo Dallaire, who is a very distinguished uh, um, uh, advocate for child soldiers here in Canada, has spoken out very publicly about Omar Khadr's status as a child soldier. Uh, so he should n- never have been in prison. And the uh, so the the uh, legal arguments about his imprisonment included things like. He should have been. He should have been. You know, was he tried as a uh, as a youth um, in in Guantanamo because the eight year sentence um, for the crimes he is alleged to have committed uh, would you know would be, would have been the sentence for a youth, not for uh, an adult. So there was a there one. You know, one of the hearings was about where should he replaced be placed. He shouldn't be in a in a prison. Uh, for um, in a in a federal a maximum security prison, he should be in a medium security or a, a minimum security prison, and uh, so that was part of the that was one of the hearings was about that. At the, at the first thing that happened was he was tried, and the judge basically bought all of the federal federal government's arguments, uh, which which were ridiculous and were basically pretending pretend pretending to um, understand military law in the Guantanamo court, and they suggested that, no, he, Omar Khadr really got a sentence of 40 years, even though he only is supposed to serve eight. So it was a very, uh, very uh, ridiculous argument by the, the, the federal government. But the judge in that case bought that argument. But the appeal court, uh, which was also here, the Alberta Queen's Court of Appeal, overturned that and, uh, and said that he should go to a medium security uh, prison at that point. But even but but the other thing that was happening here, where there were all of these legal legal uh, hearings and and going on, uh, there were also uh, the for instance the warden at the uh, Edmonton Institution, which is a maximum security prison here where Omer was. Uh, she actually transferred Omer to a medium security prison before there was any legal judgment determining that she should do so, because she said that he was no threat to anyone, that he had very good behavior, etc. Etc. And all of the and guards in Guantanamo testified at his at his plea bargain that he was quote a good kid right he's never he's never um, um, he's never he's always he's always been extremely um, he's a very intelligent person uh, he's a very thoughtful person and and a very uh, peaceful person so uh, so the hearings have been complicated there have also been hearings about uh, the he's be, the um, He's, uh, the government is being sued for uh, uh, for compensation uh, because he has been for almost 13 years imprisoned. He was tortured uh, in Bagram and in Guantanamo, and uh, you know it's just been an absolutely horrific time uh, for anyone. Uh, and there is there has also in the United States there is um, an appeal. Uh, and Omar has a really excellent American lawyer, Sam Morrison, uh, from I, from the Department of Defense, I think, who has a, an excellent case uh, that uh, he's very confident that when this appeal actually uh, happens in the United States, that the military commission uh, convictions will be overturned, just as they have in American courts up to now, because these charges that people are charged with in Guantanamo are are invented charges that uh, were not um, that were not crimes when these people were alleged to have committed them. So uh, the you know it looks like it looks very likely that when this appeal does come up in, in the United States, that all of his convictions will be overturned. And I think. Sam Morrison actually came to Edmonton, the Edmonton courtroom, uh, not long ago, and uh, spoke uh, to the judge um, who was uh, who was determining um, his bail and that sort of thing, and um, indicated that 
you know, that he was confident about this. So I think I think that also played a role in his bail, the fact that people recognize that the Guantanamo, Guantanamo Military Commission is literally a kangaroo court. They accepted evidence that it was obtained under torture, and they, they convicted him of crimes that were not crimes when he, when he was alleged to have committed them. So it's totally bogus justice. You know, um, in the U.S. press, it's often, you know, because he, I, I mean, in, it's ridiculous. He was convicted of, like, a war crime <laughs> um, and of murdering a U.S. soldier. And that's often how it's portrayed in the U.S. press. They just take what he was convicted of and say, you know, like, who was, you know, captured in Afghanistan and um, and killed, you know, murdered a U.S. soldier. Can you, you keep saying, like, it wasn't a crime when they committed them. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, it, it's, it, you know, that there are, I think he, I think there, maybe there are one or two people, maybe he's one of two people who charged with murder or something during the whole Afghan-Iraq wars, right? It, it, he's, it, it's very unusual for, for that to happen um, because it's a, it's a war zone and, and um, it, it's very unusual. The, uh, the other thing that, so that's one thing. I, I'm not a legal expert, so you should, you should talk to a, a legal scholar about this because they could explain in much more detail. You should actually interview Sam Morrison because he is brilliant and he, he really will be able to explain in great detail all of these charges. So I think I will leave that uh, to, to your interview with Sam Morrison. But, but it is the case that these, these, um, uh, these crimes uh, are are crimes that are only within the context of U.S. military law, and they were written in the, by the U.S. military. They're not crimes like you know the Geneva Conventions crimes that are you know international law or something like that. Um, so, and the the other thing I should point out, especially about the murder charge, is no doubt it is you know. For everyone who loses anyone in war, it's a terrible loss, and and their survivors grieve terribly, and we have infinite sympathy and compassion for them. But in in Omar Khadr's case, Omar this firefight that happened in Afghanistan on July twenty seventh, uh, two thousand and two, uh, lasted for four hours. Uh, the the Amer the American helicopters bombed uh, bombed. Um, this compound for four hours. Omar Cotter lost the sight in one eye. He was he was almost blind in the other eye, and he was and and the report the the final report, the official report of the military U.S. military was that Omar Cotter was the only survivor. He was the only survivor, and that he had thrown this grenade and killed this. Uh, at, at that time, they were early on. They always reported this person as a medic. Yeah, they're still uh, reporting him. They actually are still in some in some media outlets yes, in the U.S. They're still calling him a medic. Yes, and Christopher Spear, rest his soul, was a medic. Uh, uh, was trained as a medic, but he was actually fighting as a Delta, Delta Force soldier, <laughs> and he wasn't actually even wearing a, a military uniform. He was wearing Afghan clothes. So he wasn't identifiable even as a soldier. Nonetheless, here's Omar Cotter, blind in one eye, blind in another, and 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 it wasn't until uh, it wasn't until the the U.S. military in Guantanamo accidentally gave documents to a Toronto Star reporter that indicated that the U.S. military story was a lie. That in fact they the the um, in 2004, the, the, uh, the eye, they did an eye, uh, eyewitness interview with a Delta Force soldier who was the first person into the, what remained of the compound. And he said there were two people surviving and that he shot this first man who had a, who had a rifle and was shooting at him. And then when the, when the, when the man fell over dead, uh, behind him was Omar Cotter facing away from him. And, and hunched down, and uh, he shot him, etc. And and at that point, they thought they'd killed him, but he was not. You know, he was actually severely injured at that time, and it and it is not the case that he was the only survivor. So these stories about he was the only survivor, he threw the grenade. There's a lot of there's a lot of holes in that, and in fact, none of that evidence would stand up in court because they changed the documentation that said how many people were in that place. Um, the the uh, uh, the shrapnel that they found in Christopher Spears' body was not an American was 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 the wrong kind of um, was the wrong kind of shrapnel or something. Anyway, I, I you know I don't really know that. But there there's lots of 
very interesting writing that people can go to uh, to look at in detail these these issues. Um, and uh, and it's important to not take at face value what the media is saying because in Canada here for many years the media you know uh, just just yesterday. The head, headline in the Globe and Mail was convicted terrorists released on bail. Well, mm-hmm. the Globe and Mail have been reporting for several, like several years, all about the the um, problem of the uh, Guantanamo Military Commission and the fact that it is uh, a very rough justice. In fact, it's injustice, and that's still their headline. So <laughs> it's, it's a terrible thing that they kind of produce these this figure of Omar Khadr and of his history in a way that makes it very difficult for people to see him as anything but a terrorist. Yeah. Well, there's a few things that I want to put to you to uh, add or or react. Uh, First, I wanted to get in here that one of the things that Khadr said when he left prison yesterday, Omar said, uh, freedom is way better than I thought. Uh, And uh, also he had a message for Stephen Harper saying that I'm going to have to disappoint him. I'm not the person he thinks I am. And uh, so I guess to the issue of the media, uh, there there is someone I, I understand has done a, a really good job in Canada. And isn't that Michelle Shepard has done uh, good reporting on this case? Isn't that correct? Yes, that is true. Mm-hmm. And and how does there it... Others. There's also uh, Sheila Pratt uh, at the Edmonton Journal here has been a very excellent... Uh, reporter on on the uh, Omar Cotter case over the years as well and there are there are a few others but but you're correct in saying that uh, you, you know mainstream media for the you know often would report um, basically the myths rather than the facts uh, and then the one little tidbit I wanted to drop here and then I have a larger question for you is just uh, the fact uh, and this was something that Nathan Whitling mentioned that our listeners here should know that 12 years was how long um, he had served for this crime. And in Canada, uh, the max sentence for youth is uh, six years. Isn't, is that right? Yes. Yes. He, he gave, he, he spoke very eloquently about the injustice of his, uh, of his imprisonment. Okay. So to something that you spent a lot of time on as, as somebody very interested in, in social justice, uh, you, this issue of the sea of demonization. I, I think that's really something that we should have you talk about a little bit more and, and focus upon because I think it's really important. Now, a lot of people might not really understand just how significant and broad and dominating it is in Canada. I'm glad you asked that question because that is, uh, that is very important. The context uh, for Omar Khadr is, in fact, a, uh, a terrible... Uh, kind of uh, 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 terrible initiatives on the part of our federal government to uh, construct a uh, an anti-terrorist regime, which basically sacrifices all of our all of our rights. Um, they just passed uh, because they have a majority government the anti anti-terrorist quote anti-terrorist legislation, uh, huge omnibus bill uh, which is called Bill C fifty one. Many of our former prime ministers, uh, even uh, uh, you know, from many parties, uh, the the Canadian Bar Association, many, uh, all of the experts on on surveillance who have who have led federal surveillance and anti you know surveillance initiatives, etc. All of them said this bill is is terrifying in and of itself, and it does things like it makes it possible for them potentially. Uh, to arrest someone, for instance, say I'm writing a story about the alleged terrorist Omar Khadr, and I publish it. Am I promoting terrorism? Uh, it's it's an ex- it's an extremely um, problematic. The, this anti-terrorist this anti-terrorist legislation is extremely problematic because you, you you know newspapers that do do stories on on terrorism might be might be charged with promoting terrorism. Uh, it's, the, it's the first time ever in Canada that uh, it's now, uh, th- there's now a Canadian law that will uh, require judge, the judiciary to actually go against uh, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms 
and 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 break a law. Like it, it's unbelievable. It, 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 anyway, they, that's a whole story in and of itself. So that is the context of Omar Khadr. He is kind of some people see him as a scapegoat. Uh, others see him as uh, as a an alibi. Uh, for for our continued intervention in uh, in war and our increasing militarization under our under our Harper government, we've we've uh, increasingly our the 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 Museum of Civilization has been renamed the Canadian uh, Museum of History, and in it they you know they there's a lot on our our war history, etc. It's a very very it's a, it's a remaking of Canada, even to the point of, of our own sort of ideological understanding of what our nation is. And, uh, and it also is shaped by, and this was very, very, um, uh, very aggressively stated by Omar Khadr's other lawyer, Dennis Edney, yesterday, when he said that Stephen Harper is a bigot. And this, I think, you cannot, you cannot, um, you cannot, diminish the power of that because he the the i won't say islamophobia because we have a, an excellent uh social theorist here uh in canada shireen razak who's written many books on on uh on, on issues related to this including a wonderful book called casting out uh the exile of muslims uh from uh law and politics and her, she, she says we shouldn't really use this term Islamophobia because it, it tends to muddy the waters. We should really talk about anti-Muslim racism. And that does inform our, our government, without a doubt. In fact, just um, a few months ago, in January, just before our foreign minister, John Baird, resigned, he signed a, uh, a memorandum of agreement with Israel uh, that basically said that, that um, you know, any criticism of Israel that we might make here in Canada is anti-Semitism by definition. I mean, these are completely shocking and bizarre developments for Canadian foreign policy when we've had, before this government, you know, people have criticized our our our, uh, our policies in, in the Middle East from, from, from both sides, but we had a much more measured uh, foreign policy. Now we are, you know, we are... Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu's best friend, <laughs> and it's kind of shocking. It's like people in Canada, we just cannot. Um, well, we we find it absolutely alarming because these are very dangerous games that we are playing. Right? These are war games. These are alliances that we're making that are not about whether you know they're not about justice. Um, there are many many uh, Israelis uh, and and many Jewish people in Canada who are entirely critical of Netanyahu and even even you know Obama is is uh, is uh uh much more critical than than uh, Canada is so i should say that that Omar Khadr's case is in this much larger context of our foreign policy of and of a general tendency to uh demonize muslims and to uh and to be very racist about them in terms of our our federal policy and unfortunately there is a kind of trickle down effect <laughs> in that in that it it does create a, a zeitgeist in canada where it's okay for racists to speak out i mean when i when i launched my anthology omar Carter, o canada uh, in in 2012, I, I organized five launches across the country because there were many contributors to the book who were who were remarkable remarkable Canadian uh, thinkers and, and writers and uh, and activists. And when I did that, like in in Toronto, I had uh, I, I had you know the the Israeli Defense League um, demonstrated in front of the in front of the bookstore. You know, it's perfectly fine. It was a public demonstration, et cetera, et cetera. But I also had, you know, someone uh, uh, write online that, you know, that the, it was, there was going to be a big boom at the book launch. So, you know, people were, you know, the police had to be involved, uh, worried that, you know, on the off chance it could be a bomb threat. Like, you know, it was just a... So I, I think what has happened, because the government is so vocal in, in their policymaking and in their speech about about is you know about islam and muslims and the dangers of these of these people 
it it gives permission for others in our country to feel authorized to basically uh, speak out in in the most disgusting ways. And can I ask you one quick question, and then we'll wrap the interview? Uh, how much of this, and, and you can answer from a social justice perspective and from you know your own personal experience, but how much of this do you believe happens on the part of the Harper government because of what uh, the government here in the United States does? Well, I would say, I, I don't really know. I'm not a political scientist. I would say that basically we are governed as though we are the right wing of the Republican Party. And, and, and the formation of, of, of Stephen Harper is very interesting. He, he was educated in uh, Calgary. There's a Calgary School of Political Science, which is closely connected. They, they participate in kind of Republican gatherings, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a, there is a very strong neoliberal uh, tradition in, in, in southern Alberta, and, and it sort of generated, uh, the, you know, People talk about him being being kind of forged in that space. So I would say that he is he functions as uh, the Republican Party North, and that he's he's reshaping Canada as though he is the Republican Party North. All right. The ultra right, and and also the other thing is he is a um, uh, a very uh, he he is he he's also very very the the, the kind of ultra right. Uh, Christian right uh, is also part of his his base. So when he when he goes to uh, so so that's part of, of who he is appealing to, and their uh, genuine uh, connection with Israel, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And some of them are people who believe in the rapture, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's part of his constituency, and he he's actually um, you know part of a church which uh, which has. Um, beliefs that would startle people who believe in science, etc. Well, uh, thank you for taking the time to do this interview with us. Again, for people who are listening, uh, Janice Williamson, editor of the book Omar Cotter, O Canada. Um, it's a it's an anthology, uh, and uh, you know you're you're a professor and in the Department of English and Film Studies at the University of Alberta. Uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Well, thank you very much, and I hope people will learn more about Omar Cotter, Omar Cotter's case, because he has a long road ahead of him, and uh, and there are, of course, many others in Guantanamo um, who uh, are languishing there, having having done absolutely no crime, and uh, it's a it, you know the, he's he's also part of that context of the the other um, the others who Muslim mostly Muslim men who were caught up in the uh, post-9-11 anxiety. And here in Canada, you know, some of them were were sent off to be tortured, etc. So so there is a big context in which to see Omar Khadr, and there is a lot of work to be done to uh, to try and uh, resolve these um, these travesties. Absolutely. Well, thank you again. Well, yeah, thank you again so much for coming to for talking um, to us about this and speaking to our listeners about this. And we will continue to follow um, Omar Cutter's case. Um, and yeah, we appreciate everything you've done. Hello and welcome to the discussion portion of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola. We're glad to have Rania back for a discussion portion. Hey, Rania. Hey, Kevin. And uh, you were out. Uh, were, you, were you out hanging around with all the professional protesters that descended upon Baltimore just to, you know, wreak havoc and chaos and anarchy? That's what Tom, that's what Don Lemon. Uh, I got a message <laughs> from him. He had told me that. Uh, all these people were just there hanging around causing mass chaos. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's exactly. I was just like hanging in Baltimore with like all my professional protester and outside agitator friends. Um, yeah, it was it was pretty it was pretty crazy. We we're just messing things up. Exactly what Don Lemon said. Don mm. Lemon is totally credible. And you were impersonating media while you I was there. impersonating media, yes. <laughs> so Don Lemon called the police on me. <laughs> all right, well, um I mean, there's there, there's a lot of stuff that happened with Baltimore, and uh, 
And we're going to continue to follow anything that develops around Freddie Gray's uh, important case. But I wanted to highlight this positive development that was really a product of grassroots activism in Chicago quickly. And what happened is uh, the Chicago City Council passed a reparations ordinance that had been in the works for a very long time. There were groups uh, that were on the ground here in Chicago, where I'm based, that had worked very, very tirelessly to bring some kind of justice, some kind of uh, semblance of justice for people who have been tortured by a Chicago police commander named John Burge, who was uh, in command from 1972 to 1991. There are two police headquarters on the south side of the city where it's estimated over 110 people were um, probably tortured there and and suffered uh, things like electrical shocks, um, uh, you know, use of, of cattle prods, um, uh, mock executions, things that are very horrific. And so basically there's now a fund where these survivors can get up to $100,000 from the fund to... Uh, compensate them for their mistreatment, but then this is a restorative justice action, and there's a lot of very good non-financial benefits that they'll be able to get, like psychological counseling for survivors and their families. The city is planning to build a center uh, that's actually modeled after another center on the north side of Chicago that has helped torture victims from countries uh, outside the U.S., so when refugees have come to Chicago, they've helped them with counseling. Uh, there's also going to be a public recognition part of this ordinance where in 8th and 10th grade history classes, uh, students are going to be able to learn about the cases of torture by Burge. And there's going to be a memorial constructed in Chicago. So it's like for the first time, the city has really decided to confront this history and allow these survivors to no longer be ignored. Uh, they're bringing this torture out into the open for public acknowledgement which is really huge. Um, and so just to quote someone who did some really tremendous work, was one of the, the leaders in making this happen, uh, Miriam Kaba, who's the founder and, execu and executive director of Project NIA. You know, she, her, what she said was that over the course of the past six months, a coalition of individuals and groups organized tirelessly to achieve this goal. Today's historic, historic achievement, passage of the reparations ordinance, is owed to the decades of organizing to bring some justice to the survivors of Burge and his fellow officers' unconscionable torture. We have successfully organized to preserve the public memory of the atrocities experienced by over 110 black people at the hands of Chicago police torture because we refuse to let anyone in this city ever forget what happened here. Um, yeah, and so, you know, at first what they had to do was travel to the United Nations in Geneva to actually get this onto a world stage, and then that really forced the hand because uh, for the long time before Mayor Rahm Emanuel became the person in control of the city, there was Mayor Richard Daley, and he was actually implicated. He had been a state's attorney involved in covering up the torture, and so he basically had this really... Um, dismissive, uh, derisive, and also, you know, was interested in, in, in shooing it away so that he didn't have to take any responsibility. And even though Amnesty USA was involved in calling attention, and even though there was so much, um, uh, you know, human rights attention on, on what was going on in the city, uh, Rania, this is what he actually said when it was his turn to apologize. Um, and this was like, you know, only a few years ago. Um, one of the last things he said while he was mayor, maybe just after like 2010, uh, or, or sorry, um, in, in the 2000s, saying, uh, well, the best way is to say, okay, I apologize to everybody for whatever happened to anybody in the city of Chicago. So um, uh, I apologize to everybody. Uh, whatever happened to them in the city of Chicago in the past, uh, I apologize. I didn't do it, but somebody else did it. Uh, your editorial was bad. I apologize. Uh, your article about the mayor. I apologize. I need an apologize uh, apology from you because you wrote a bad editorial. And just just laughing, just just mocking everybody who thought that you know we need an apology for this. And I don't know. It's really profound that the city has actually been able to move beyond where it was ten years ago because it was really horrid. 
Damn. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm glad to hear that there's this this pass. This is like really, really important. And so the last thing is just that this is a model. Um, one of the things that's being talked about is that this is something that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement can look at as a victory. And it's how they can win justice because Chicago actually, you know, it, it sounds weird as an achievement. You know, it's the first city to bring reparations for police violence to a group of people um, like this. This hasn't been done in any other American city. Now, on one hand, you go, well, that's not really an accomplishment to be proud of. Your city shouldn't have tortured them in the first place. But on the other hand, there are tons of cities in the United States where this kind of violence happens. And there are groups around the country that are looking to Chicago to learn from what organizations did on the ground here. And, and then they're going to hopefully be able to reproduce that in other cities and uh, bring justice for people. Uh, because in this case, the key thing was that Burge could not be put on trial for torture because the city didn't try to prosecute him and let the statute of limitations elapse before they brought any charges against him. So he got off. Uh, he went to jail for perjury because he lied about the torture, but he didn't go to jail for torture. Um, and uh, he's still getting a pension. And so he mostly has gotten off scot-free, except for you know a couple of years where his life was interrupted and he had to go to a cushy prison probably. And, uh, and now, you know, this was one way that the survivors could get some justice. So I know you wanted to talk about uh, some developments in Israel. So why don't you bring those up? Yeah. So um, Netanyahu was reelected as prime minister um, not too long ago. And now he, he reached the deadline where he had to put together this, this government, this coalition government. He made all these appointments um, to like ministerial positions and he appointed to, um, as justice minister, uh, a lawmaker named Ayelet Shaked. She is like one of the rising stars of what, of the Jewish home party, which is this like ultra nationalist kind of fascist party, like, um, like settler party, if you will. And, uh, and yeah, she last summer, um, like a day, I think it was a day or two before Mohammed Abu Khader was, was burnt alive. Um, she posted to her Facebook page, like an excerpt from an article written by this, like former, this like late, this now dead, but like right wing, um, journalist and leader of Israel settler movement and former speechwriter to Netanyahu. Um, that like basically called Palestinians, um, well, basically called for the slaughter of Palestinian mothers um, in their beds to prevent them from birthing little snakes. So she basically like endorsed this call to genocide, and it received thousands of Facebook likes. Um, and so that's like sort of what she's become known for, which is you know she's like this pro-genocide person, but she's also made other horrific comments about Palestinians. Um, she basically says that the entire Palestinian people is the enemy. Um, she hates. African non-Jewish Africans and like wants to round, you know, like wants them all deported. Um, she's an awful human being. Uh, and she is now Israel's justice minister. You have a pro-genocide justice minister um, in Israel. And she's also like wants to, the, it's important that she's justice minister. That's like a significant um, thing because also she um, she's like always complaining that the court is too liberal. The Supreme Court in Israel is too liberal because she wants to be able to enact this like power plan that would basically remove Palestinian citizens of Israel from these villages that are unrecognized by Israel and aren't allowed to connect to like the electricity grid and the water system because they're Palestinian villages. Um, she wants to remove them to create, to be able to like create Jewish only communities where they are um, and put them into like these reservation style areas. Um, this is a plan that was like kind of put on hold a couple years ago because there was so much um, backlash to it from the international community. But she basically wants to put this back on the map. So um, that's bad. Um, and then also Naftali Bennett is going to be a, is a minister in this government. He, I think he might be the minister of education, um, which is funny. Ali Abunim was like, he's the, he's the minister of incitement because that's kind of like what the education um, in Israel is. It's just entirely incitement. Um, and uh, Naftali Bennett is the leader of the Jewish Home Party. Um, 
And he, like, has said, and I mean, he's, like, super right-wing. He's a settler himself. Um, or no, I don't know if he's a settler himself, but he's like a huge supporter of settlers. And I, and he, he said in the past, like he's basically bragged that he's killed Arabs. Like, why is that a problem? Um, and he basically supports like de facto, like, like, you know, indefinite apartheid in Israel. Um, so this is very troubling. And then more recently, like I, you know, I'm just reading about this before we started recording, um, there is the, so Benjamin Netanyahu also, um, has appointed, uh, he like signed, I guess, like some coalition agreement with this far right. Uh, with with well, he signed this agreement with the Jewish Home Party, right? That's a coalition agreement. Like he needed them to form his government, so he was kind of forced to 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 appoint a lot of these people who are actually further right than he is, if you can believe that. Um, and so, as part of this agreement, this Rabbi Ben Dahan will be Israel's next deputy defense minister, which means that he's responsible for like the Israeli army's. Um, like all aspects of the occupation in the West Bank, basically. Um, and so these are some of the things that this rabbi, um, Eli Ben Dahan, has said in the past. He said, Palestinians are beasts. They are not human. He said that in 2013. Um, he also said that same year, a Jew always has a much higher soul than a Gentile, even if he is a homosexual. Like, this is the kind of government that is being formed in Israel with people who say things like this. Um, very, very genocidal language. I mean, it's like, you can only laugh. It's like, what? But, like, these people are describing, I mean, this is the kind of language you use to, to describe people that you want to eliminate. You call them beasts. You call them snakes. You talk about killing their children so that they don't, you know, so you talk about killing the mothers so they can't have more children. Like, this is this is Israel. This is like the face of Israel now is these types of sentiments and people. Um, and so it's very, very troubling. And it's but it's also not at all surprising. Um, so I guess, like, I'm just curious, like, to see how people will be defending this um, because I've seen a lot of silence around it. A lot of the reporting has basically like Ayelet Shaked, um, instead of describing her pro genocide views, a lot of, you know, mainstream outlets like the New York times have been describing her as like a controversial figure who said, who said some harsh things about Palestinians and Africans. It's like, what? Like there's a, I mean, there's harsh things and then there's genocide. Like, you know what I mean? Those are, I, I don't know if you can really compare the two. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's just utterly like, it's, it really, in a lot of ways, like the way the media is reporting on these people as if they're just like our right wing, like, it's like, oh yeah, like Michelle got Bachman got appointed to some position and like Michelle Bachman's really bad, but like, I mean, she's not advocating genocide as far as I know. Um, and so, like, it's like, you know, they're not really, um, they're not really conveying the, and like, the magnitude of the, like, really deep-seated hatred and racism that Israel's new government, um, you know, really, like, it, it represents, you know? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's very concerning. And also, like, I just wanted to mention um, this new report came out by Breaking the Silence, which is, like, this... Uh, this Israeli soldier, Israeli army, like uh, soldiers who basically like are, are critic, like they, they, they um, are anti-occupation and they take testimony from soldiers um, who've like recent, like recently participated in certain operations, um, like basically criticizing what they've done. Um, and then they publish them. Um, I mean, this group is kind of problematic because it like hides all the identities of people. So people can basically go to breaking the silence and just like admit to committing war crimes and they don't ever have to face any repercussions i mean a lot of the stuff that they end up publishing it just like reinforces what palestinians are already saying um but it's like oh israeli soldier said it now so we can believe it but in this report they released about um operation cast lead or i'm sorry operation uh protective edge last summer in gaza um you know so the soldiers detail some pretty awful things um basically the idea that you know basically like from the testimonies they took you get the sense that um that all of Gaza was treated as, um, as like, it, it basically, there were, the atmosphere was, it's okay to kill civilians. Um, and it, in fact, it was like kind of encouraging the killing of civilians. Um, people said things like anything inside Gaza um, is a threat. Uh, the area has to be sterilized, empty of people. And if we don't see someone waving a white flag, screaming, I give up or something, then he's a threat and there's authorization to open fire. That's what one soldier said, one sergeant said, who was operating in Deir al-Bala. Um, 
He said the saying was, there's no such thing there as a person who is uninvolved. And uh, in that situation, anyone there is involved. So basically, the, the whole idea was that everybody in Gaza is complicit um, with terrorism in the eyes of Israel. I mean, we already know this is kind of like what, um, you know, what Israeli leaders have said before, especially like in the military. But to hear it just like in this very stark way is pretty shocking. Um, like things, another thing someone said, like, we don't take risks. We don't, we do not spare ammo. We unload, we use as much as possible. Um, he remembered a commander saying that's like someone else who was giving his testimony, the instructor. And this is another person, a staff sergeant that was operating in Northern Gaza. Um, he said, the instructions are to shoot right away. Uh, whoever you spot, be they armed or unarmed, no matter what. The instructions are very clear. Any person you run into that you see with your eyes, shoot to kill. It's an explicit instruction. Um, another staff sergeant describes this horrific situation. Um, he says, so this old man came over and the guy manning the post, I don't know what was going through his head. He saw this civilian and he fired at him and he didn't get a good hit. The civilian was laying there writhing in pain. Um, it was clear to everyone that one of two things was going to happen. Either we let him die slowly or we put him out of his misery. Eventually, we put him out of his misery, and a D-9 armed bulldozer came over and dropped a mound of rubble on him, and that was the end of it. Oh, God. Um, I mean, it's just, like, full of stories like this. Um, there was another story uh, about, like, shooting two women who were completely unarmed. And then basically, like, report and basically, like, um, uh, classifying them as terrorists and saying that they were terrorists who were armed and they had to shoot them. Um, so, yeah, and then this other guy, I mean, like, it's like, and there was one time that my tank's driver, a slightly hyperactive guy, managed to convince the tank's driver to run over a car, and it was really not that exciting. Um, but, like, they go, this guy goes on to talk about how everybody, like, really, really loved running over cars. Um, and then he also says, I never saw, and then he's talking about the houses were already in ruins by the time we got there. Um I never saw anything like it, not even in Lebanon. There was destruction there, too, but never in my life did I see anything like this. I mean, just talking about how, like, the permissive environment of just destroying everything. And then, like, one last thing I'll mention is um, this one thing that stood out to me, which I think is really emblematic of, like, the the way that the Israeli army um, views things. Um, so this one soldier who says, he says the following, he says, there was this bumper sticker during the operation that said, the lives of our soldiers come before the lives of enemy civilians. This was sort of the policy because all these things really help protect the lives of IDF soldiers. And the question becomes, where's the line? Or in which case do we risk the lives of IDF soldiers because of certain values, because of ethics? That's a big question. If I, as a commander, need to take over a house how, um, house number 22, on the way there, there's this little house number 21, and the D-9 armed bulldozer can raise it so that it poses no risk to me. This wasn't the choice I made, but that's the way the scales were balanced. Either I don't take it down, and it keeps posing a risk, or dot, dot, dot. So, I mean, this is also, like, a soldier basically saying, like, he's, like, basically saying it's kind of okay what they did. Um, and he also talks about, like, um, entire neighborhoods, like, basically how we, we blew up not just houses, but entire neighborhoods to basically reduce the risk to soldiers. And then there was this other soldier that said, um, he commented, there, were, especially this week, he commented he was operational in Rafa um, with the Gavadi Brigade, which was just, like, the one that, um, they, they, I mean, they, they just carried out horrific massacres everywhere they went. It's, like, a group of, like, ultra-nationalist religious, uh, run, or it's a group that's commanded by an ultra-nationalist religious um commander. Um, and he said this, he said, there were a lot of people there who really hate Arabs, really, really hate Arabs. You could see the hate in their eyes. Um, so anyways, this report, I mean, there's just like, it, it's, you know, I mean, there's so many more shocking things, but it, the report's like 200 pages long, so I can't read every single one of them. <laughs> um, but yeah, it just speaks to the, um, you know, how, you know, Israel's always saying it goes out of its way to reduce civilian casualties. And it's clearly not. And now we have more proof that it's not. And there's one last thing I do want to mention. I mentioned about Israel's government being super right wing. And this is kind of important. Israel's defense minister, Moshe Yalon, um, gave this speech at this conference um, on Tuesday. Uh, and he basically promised that Israel would attack civilian neighborhoods during any future assault on Gaza or Lebanon. Um, he said, we're going to hurt Lebanese civilians to include kids of the family. We went through a very long, deep discussion. We did it then. We did it in the Gaza Strip. We are going to do it in any round of hostilities in the future. He also threatened to uh, nuke, um, to nuke uh, uh, Iran. 
Um, he said, in certain cases, when we feel like we don't have the answer by surgical operations, Israel might take certain steps, such as the Americans did in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, causing the end of the fatalities of 200,000 people. Um, so, yeah, he said this. He also admitted he also basically like bragged that Israel planned um, the massacre in Shijaiya, which is this neighborhood in Gaza that was just completely decimated and like flattened um, with people still in it. Uh, he said that he planned that they had planned that a year in advance. They planned it in 2013. And he even said that he bragged about he bragged about it to the secretary general of the U.N., Ban Ki-moon. So, yeah, this is the defense minister in Israel um, promising to kill children. Um, in Gaza and Lebanon. And like, you know, it's crazy because I mean, it's, it's just incredible the things that Israeli leaders can say openly, publicly, um, and you will not see a headline about it like anywhere. I mean, an Israeli leader, can, this is the, def- I mean, this is like if our department, like if our secretary of defense were to just like go to a conference that's being live streamed for everyone to see and to, you know, like openly without shame, um, discuss his plans to massacre civilians in like Syria and Iraq and Yemen and Pakistan or whatever the hell that we're bombing. I mean, this is what, this is what's happening. It's like you, this is what you have Israeli officials doing and you don't see a headline about it. You don't see the New York times report about it. I mean, it's incredible. They can basically incite to genocide with no media outlets giving a shit. Um, and it's really, really frustrating. Wow. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to go on about that as long as I did, but there was just, there's just so much hate. I don't, it's like, it takes so long to go through it because there's so much and no one's talking about it except for like Mondo Weiss and the Electronic Intifada. Yeah, and 200 pages in a, in a report and oh, incredibly overwhelming. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to, okay, one of the few things I want to get in here before we wrap the show is involves this case of, uh, they're now, she's now 85 years old, so it's a nun, and then two army veterans who are, I think, around their six, around 60 years old. And they broke into a U.S. government facility that houses weapons grade uranium and uh, and did a and did a protest uh back in back on June 28th 2012 so her name is Megan Rice and then uh Greg and Michael are the two veterans uh and it's called the Y12 National Security Complex and it's in Oak Ridge Tennessee and what happened was on Friday, there was this really incredible news because the federal appeals court reversed their convictions under the Sabotage Act. And perhaps you had no idea this was something that was still on the books. But, um, you know, I think within all of the U.S. government's hysteria around uh, communism and and, and around the, the, the spread of... Uh, any sort of, I, I guess, uh, Axis forces or, or whatever against the Soviets. Uh, this was one of the laws that was passed in the early 1900s, and it basically criminalizes anyone who um, you know, would interfere with the national defense, uh, anyone with the intent to injure or interfere with or obstruct the national defense. You can get sentenced to up to 20 years in jail for violating this. So what these people did is they went to this building. They managed to get through the fencing. They spray-painted anti-war slogans. They hung crime tape. And they hung, ba- and they hung banners with biblical phrases. They splashed blood. And then they sang hymns until a security guard approached them. And that was when they explained to the guard... Uh, that they were they, they read an announcement basically saying that they were there to uh, work towards real life giving alternatives to build true peace uh, and then they very uh, peacefully allowed themselves to be arrested and escorted off away from the facility and when they decided that they were not going to accept the charges that the US Justice Department wanted to bring against them, then the Justice Department turned vindictive. And decided, 
they were going to go back and slap them with charges of violating the Sabotage Act, which was enacted during World War II. And the Federal Appeals Court quite rightly figured out that these people were engaged in a nonviolent act of resistance against nuclear, against nuclear weapons. In no way, shape, or form did they affect the United States' ability to launch any kinds of weapons to defend this country. Uh, and this is, so this is a direct quote from the ruling. No rational jury could find that the defendants had that intent when they cut the fences. They did not cut them to allow al-Qaeda to slip in behind. Nor could a rational jury find that the defendants had that intent when they engaged in their protest activities. He also added that, true, their ultimate, ga- their ultimate goal in engaging in those activities was to advance the cause of disarmament by persuading Y-12's employees to abandon their pursuits. But the ultimate end that compelled them to act, uh, you know, that was their motive. And they, they said that the defendants' immediate purpose in hanging the banners themselves was simply to protest. So this is a huge victory because it removes the, you know, it basically it shoots back at the Justice Department and says, no, you can't equate protest or this kind of nonviolent resistance action, and in, the, in this case against nuclear weapons, uh, and, and, and in the tradition of some of the most uh, vibrant anti-nuclear weapons protest in America, you know, calling on the tradition of, of Christian pacifists, um, or I guess they like to call themselves more of like Christian anarchists because they so believe in the gospel that they don't care about power or authority. They believe in the values and principles, and they're going to take action for peace against nuclear weapons. And uh, so uh, this is what they did. And I also like – I appreciate that the Federal Appeals Court also uh, knocked down this ludicrous argument that the prosecutors had that they had interfered with the national defense by creating, quote, bad publicity for the nuclear facility. Um, And, you know, the appeals court just bluntly said that it takes a lot more than bad publicity to injure the (laughs) national defense. I mean (laughs) – Okay, so, and also, what's amazing, and you'll like this, because it goes towards, like, the hypocrisy of bringing this sort of case against people, um, or, or, because what they were talking about is that by working towards, uh, by advocating for nuclear disarmament and pushing for this, they were interfering um, with the national defense. And so, essentially, you know, right now, we're telling that, We're telling Iran that it can't have nuclear weapons to protect its national security. And then in court here, in this case, the U.S. government is saying that if we don't have nuclear uh, enriched – if we don't don't have enriched uranium, then we won't be able to defend this country. So obviously, you know, the message being sent is that uh, people around the world might want to have their own nuclear arsenals because uh, they can't keep their national security without having nuclear weapons. I mean, if the U.S. can't defend itself without nuclear weapons, then I'm sure that other countries are looking around and going, I think we've got to keep our nuclear arsenals as well. And uh, it's a very dangerous world that people would, you know, have nuclear weapons. So Agreed. Agreed. Well said. So that's that's the the one story I want. And then a huge, huge development in another federal appeals court finding that the uh, U.S. government's, uh, the the NSA uh, bulk surveillance program that collects all of our phone records is illegal um, and unlawful. And most importantly, uh, you know, this is is the program under the Patriot Act that Edward Snowden disclosed. It's also, (laughs) hilariously, the one that James Clapper is now claiming he forgot about. Um, because I guess he's senile or something, um, or maybe this program is not that important. Maybe it doesn't actually do anything for this country at all, and so we could just do away with this dragnet. Uh, but in any case, um, what was really important about this decision that the appeals court issued was just that it, it, it focused in on the most dangerous part about this program and basically said if the government was allowed to collect all telephone records because any and everything could hypothetically be relevant to a counterterrorism investigation, then this would mean that the government could 
take our data from anywhere in the private sector, our financial records, our medical records, any sort of email or social media information. They could create databases with all of this data. You know, they could store this and they could have this for an indefinite amount of time for however long they chose and didn't have to be concerned about our privacy at all. Uh, you know, anybody could be targeted with this data just because maybe in the future those people might be involved in terrorism. So the appeals court said that this was wrong, um, you can't operate like this, and uh, sent it back to uh, basically invalidated it, and I think sent it down to a lower court to look at it again, and um, I don't know what's going to happen next, but as someone who's been following this closely, I hugely appreciated seeing judges uh, call the government out for their rationale for mass surveillance. So uh, I think that does it. Um, I was, it was good to be back. I was glad to do the show. Yeah, me too. It was fun, as always. And, um, yeah, I guess we will be back next week. <laughs>